Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for Palm Sunday, April 10th, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. A special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Palm Sunday. The sermon text is taken from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 43. can be found in your pew Bible on page 1671 if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 43. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is it written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and, that where, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Palm Sunday is one of the best-known Sundays of the entire church here. I would be willing to bet that even churches who don't observe most of the rest of the church calendar still find an excuse to celebrate Palm Sunday. What makes Palm Sunday so interesting from our perspective is that the very thing we celebrate, the cheering crowds and the palm branches, represent the very things the crowd got wrong about Jesus on that first Palm Sunday. For most in the crowd, Jesus was the coming king. They anticipate that he's coming to do more good and amazing things as king. These crowds have seen the miracles. They've heard him speak, and now they're ready for more. After all, the crowds that are there right then at that moment have just witnessed Jesus speak and call Lazarus out of the tomb. At this point, maybe Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Even the Pharisees and the scribes look like they've quit. You see, the world has gone after Jesus. Jesus has won. He's arrived as king. And to be sure, Jesus is king. And he's coming to do more and amazing things. In fact, Jesus has come to do the best and the most amazing thing. But contrary to what the crowd is expecting that day in Jerusalem, Jesus has not come to take his throne. He's come to die. And the crowds don't realize that. And the encounters that Jesus has immediately after his triumphal entry will illustrate that we don't always anticipate Jesus' death correctly either. So turning our eyes back to John 12 this morning, first we will see that Jesus' death is the pattern for our lives. After arriving in Jerusalem and after the fervor of the triumphal entry had died down, some Greeks approached Philip and had a simple request. In fact, it might be the most pious request anyone ever had in Scripture. We want to see Jesus. Now, these were probably Greek-speaking Gentiles, and that put Philip in an interesting spot as Philip had a Greek name. He was a natural ambassador to these people. Philip, unsure of what to do, gets his brother Andrew, and they both approach Jesus together. Now, Andrew is the natural evangelist of the two brothers. I remember being taught in seminary that every time Andrew shows up in the Gospels, he's bringing someone to Jesus. And he does so here. He asks Jesus 
to be revealed to these Gentiles. But Jesus' answer to Philip and Andrew is incredibly instructive. First, now is not the time for Jesus to be showing off. Now is the time for Jesus to die. Which might not be that unusual, really, of Jesus' teaching. Jesus spent a fair amount of time in the Gospels predicting and teaching about his death. The way Jesus refers to his death, however, is surprising. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here again, Jesus is feeding into the narrative and the fervor of the crowds on Palm Sunday. The crowds want Jesus to be glorified. They just don't see his glory coming. Jesus is once again an unexpected king. The glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, is his death. But Jesus' answer to Philip and Andrew is instructive for a second reason, in that Jesus' death is the pattern for our lives as Christians. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. As Jesus dies sacrificially for others, as Jesus dies for us as our neighbor, you too are to die sacrificially for others. Now, there's two things we need to clear up on this. First, you are called to die sacrificially for others, not in so much as you are called to fall on a grenade for those around you, although that is honorable and commendable, you are called to live a life of sacrifice for others. The other reason this is interesting and and, and that we really need to clear up is as soon as we hear about Jesus speak of his sacrificial life or as his sacrificial death as a pattern for our lives, we want to see Jesus as our example. And to an extent... Jesus is our example. But the problem there is that if we leave Jesus as our example, all Jesus can do for us is shame us. All Jesus does for us as an example is set an impossible standard for us to follow. And so there is an example. Jesus shows us how to live our lives as obedient children of God. Absolutely. But as soon as we look at Jesus in that way, we're going to see that we are disobedient children of God. We are going to be shamed by our imperfection. And so as Jesus calls us to live sacrificial lives for our neighbor, as Jesus puts us into our vocations, he wants us to primarily think about his death. Not as an example, but as freedom. You see, Jesus' death is the pattern for our life because in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus has given us everything we need for life and salvation. And now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are freed and we are called to love others. 
You don't need anything right now. You have everything you need for eternity. So that even if you suffer want, even if you lack some material thing, and you suffer and you die, eternity is so much better than what you have at this moment. You don't need anything. And so God calls you to love, to love your neighbor, to sacrifice your life for your neighbor because this is how God provides for your neighbor. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer and ask for our daily bread, he is giving us daily bread through our neighbor and he is giving our neighbor daily bread through us. But even more than that, we are called to live lives of sacrifice for our neighbor because ultimately, this is how God draws people into his kingdom. Let our light shine before men so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. When it's all said and done, your unbelieving neighbors, your friends, your family, your literal next-door neighbor, whomever it may be, they need to see Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. But quite often, their first encounter with Jesus will be you, will be your sacrificial love for them. And Jesus' sacrifice is the pattern and the freedom for our sacrifice. Moving on, we see that Jesus' death is incredibly good news, but it is costly. When it comes to Jesus' identity as king, and when it comes to Jesus' death, I think the trap Christians most easily fall into is that Jesus' death is bad, but Jesus' resurrection is good. We, we, we get that a lot on Good Friday. Good Friday, bad. Easter Sunday morning, good. I mean, it all flows well for us. We don't gather together and eat egg bake on Friday night. We do it on Easter Sunday morning. Egg bake is a sign of the gospel, right? Well, might be a little bit too far to say that. But fellowshipping with other Christians around a meal is. Death in our society is always bad. We hate death. Actually, I need to qualify that. Our society loves death. Death is all over the place in society. We hate grief. We hate someone else's sadness making us uncomfortable. And Jesus' death leaves us particularly uncomfortable because of how gruesome and inhumane it was. We have a hard time with it. If we stop and honestly assess the Gospels, we struggle with the fact that Jesus' own death made him uncomfortable. 
Jesus goes this week to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays and he sweats drops of blood asking the Lord to take this cup from him if at all possible. The the impact of dying for the sins of the entire world and incurring the wrath of God against all of the sins of the entire world for all time is stressful. Even here, on Palm Sunday, as he interacts with his disciples, Jesus acknowledges that his death troubles him. He could pray at that moment for the Father to save him from that hour. But it's the costliness of Jesus' death that makes it so valuable to us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sheds his blood to cleanse us from sin. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, pays the price we deserve for our sins. Jesus dies our death so that on Good Friday, when we behold Christ hanging from the cross in our mind's eye, that is the most accurate picture of what our sin looks like. Christ, bruised and battered, suspended by nails, gasping for air. And yet, at the exact same time, that's what God's grace and mercy looks like to us. Because we see Christ there and not us. We celebrate the death of Christ because he went in our place and he went willingly for us. And so Jesus' death is incredibly glorious. It's the height of the glory of God. It is the single act that not only identifies God in the center of his character is gracious and merciful to us as sinners, but it also enables God to continually and consistently be gracious in mercy. God remains God even as Christ dies in our place because our sin is being dealt with. Our sin is being punished. It's just that we're not being punished for it. Jesus is. Jesus' death allows us to praise God as a just God who's also done everything necessary to give us peace with him. Finally then, Jesus' death is still for us. In the final encounter of our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus identifies how the people rejected him even as they embrace him as the coming king. John writes, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The constant attitude of sinful humanity with God is, what have you done for me lately? God, I know we just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, but I'm angry right now because I'm hungry. All day, every day, that's the rebellion of our sinful nature. 
And that rebellion is one of the major themes of the Gospel of John. John highlights the constant rejection of the Pharisees. That the Pharisees' response after Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb and raises him from the dead, the Pharisees respond by plotting an assassination attempt on Lazarus' life. Jesus is rejected. But more than that, Jesus is rejected by the masses. John 1.11, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now normally, at this point, I would identify how we are no different from the Pharisees and from the Jews who rejected Jesus as he walked among us. In our pride, we want to serve ourselves. In our idolatry, we are chasing after anything else to worship. Both of these are absolutely correct and accurate and scriptural. But that's not the message being emphasized here in John 12. There's another category of people that enter into the picture. The people who believe in Jesus, but are still cowards. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. From my observations, and especially from my own experience in life, this is the largest group of people in the church who need the gospel. But it is also the most frequent group of people in the church who are denied the gospel. You see, Christians almost automatically and reflexively understand that unbelievers need the gospel. That's the whole point of evangelism. But what Christians often miss is that Christians need the gospel. We get so caught up in living a good Christian life, which indeed is important. Or we get even more caught up in living a life as Christians of evangelism. Also important, but probably not what you think it looks like. And in the midst of this, we forget that Christians need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel because we're sinners. We need to hear the gospel because we're cowards, bending to the pressure of the world around us constantly. We need to hear the gospel because we so often and regularly forget the gospel. We try to do it ourselves. We try to evaluate our relationship with God based on our performance. And this then is ultimately what Palm Sunday is all about. The King is coming. We heard this in Advent and we've been waiting ever since. The crowds have gathered to laud and praise Jesus as he comes. They've strewn palm branches on the path in front of him and are honoring him. The king is coming. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's coming for you. The king is coming so that you might refocus your Christian life as a life of sacrifice for your neighbor. 
The king is coming to anchor God's glory and God's grace and mercy. But finally and foremost, the king is coming because as the king, he's exactly the savior you need right now. He's the king who dies in your place and who forgives all your sins and who saves you and grants you eternal life. And this king continually offers these gifts to you over and over again, repeatedly, every Sunday. The king offers himself to you even now as you prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. And these gifts are never, ever going away. Because precisely as king, Jesus succeeded in being a conquering king. A king who has conquered sin and death and the devil. Jesus is coming, and he's coming for you. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.